Chapter 4 of The Double This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Siddharth. The Double by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Translated by Constance Carnet. Chapter 4 That day, the birthday of Clara Sofievna, the only daughter of the civil councillor, Berendiev, at one time, Mr. Goliatkin's benefactor and patron was being celebrated by a brilliant and sumptuous dinner party, such as not had been seen for many a long day within the walls of the flats in the neighbourhood of Ismailovsky Bridge. A dinner more like some Balthazar's feast, with a suggestion of something Babylonian in its brilliant luxury and style, with few clicquot, champagne and oysters and fruit from Elysiades and Milliotins, with all sorts of fatted calves and all grades of government service. This festive day was to conclude with a brilliant ball, a small birthday ball, but yet brilliant in its taste, its distinction and its style. Of course, I am willing to admit that similar balls do happen sometimes, though rarely. Such balls, more like family rejoicings than balls, can only be in such houses as that of the civil councillor, Berenyev. I will say more. I even doubt if such balls could be given in the houses of all civil councillors. Oh, if I were a poet, such as Homer or Pushkin, I mean, of course, with any lesser talent one would not venture, I should certainly have painted all that glorious day for you. Oh, my readers, with a free brush and brilliant colours. Yes, I should begin my poem with my dinner. I should lay special stress on that striking and solemn moment when the first goblet was raised to the honour of the Queen of the Feet. I should describe to you the guests plunged in a reverent silence and expectation, as eloquent as the rhetoric of Demosthenes. I should describe for you, then, how Andrei Filipovich, having asked the eldest of the guests some right to take precedence, adorned with his grey hair and the orders what well befit grey hairs, got up from his seat and raised above his head the congratulatory glass of sparkling wine, brought from a distant kingdom to celebrate such occasions in more like heavenly nectar than plain wine. I would portray for you the guests and the happy parents raising their glasses too after Andrei Filipovich, and fastening upon him eyes full of expectation. I would describe for you how the same Andrei Filipovich so often mentioned, after dropping a tear in his glass, delivered his congratulations and good wishes, proposed the toast, and drank the health. But I confess, I freely confess, that I could not do justice to that solemn moment, when the Queen of the Feet, Clara Osofevna, blushing like a rose in spring, with the glow of bliss and modesty, was so overcome by her feelings, that she sank into the arms of her tender mamma. How that tender mamma shed tears, and how the father, old Sophie Ivanovich, a hale old man and a privy councillor, who had lost the use of his legs in his long years of service and been rewarded by destiny for his devotion with investments, a house, some small estates, and a beautiful daughter, sobbed like a little child and announced through his tears that His Excellency was a benevolent man. I could not, I positively could not, 
described the enthusiasm that followed that moment in every heart an enthusiasm clearly evinced in the conduct of a youthful register clerk though at that moment he was more like a civil councillor than a register clerk who was moved to tears too as he listened to andrey filipovitch in his turn too andrey filipovitch was in that solemn moment quite unlike a collegiate councillor and the head of an office in the department yes he was something else what exactly i do not know but not a collegiate councillor he was more exalted finally oh why do i not possess the secret of lofty powerful language of the sublime style to describe these grand and edifying moments of human life which seem created expressly to prove that virtue sometimes triumphs over ingratitude free thinking vice and envy i will say nothing but in silence which will be better than any eloquence i will point to that fortunate youth just entering on his twenty-sixth spring to vladimir semyonovitch andrey filipovitch's nephew who in his turn proposed a toast and upon whom we fastened the tearful eyes of the parents the proud eyes of andrey filipovitch the modest eyes of the queen of the fate the solemn eyes of the guests and even decorously envious eyes of some of the young men's youthful colleagues i will say nothing of that though i cannot refrain from observing that everything in that young man who was indeed speaking in a complimentary sense more like an elderly than a young woman everything from his blooming cheeks to his accessorial rank seemed almost to proclaim aloud the lofty pinnacle a man can attain through morality and good principles i will not describe how anton antonovich sietotochkin a little old man as grey as a badger the head clerk of the department who was a colleague of andrey filipovich's and had once been also of olsofy ivanovich's and was an old friend of the family and clara olsofavina's godfather and his turn proposed a toast crowed like a cock and cracked many little jokes how by this extremely proper breach of propriety if one might use such an expression he made the whole company laugh till they cried and how clara also favoured at her parents rewarded him for his jocularity and politeness with a kiss i will only say that the guests who must have felt like kinsfolk and brothers after such a dinner at last rose from the table and the elderly and more solid guests after a brief interval spent in friendly conversation interspersed with some candid and of course very polite and proper observations went decorously into the next room and without losing valuable time promptly divided themselves up into parties and full of the sense of their own dignity installed themselves at tables covered with green paste meanwhile the ladies established in the drawing-room suddenly became very affable and began talking about press materials and the venerable host who had lost the use of his legs in the service of loyalty and religion had been rewarded with all the blessings we have enumerated above began walking about on crutches among his guests supported by vladimir semyonovitch in clara osifavna and he too suddenly becoming extremely affable decided to improvise a modest little dance regardless of the expense to that end a nimble youth the one who was more like a civil councillor than a youth was dispatched to fetch musicians 
and musicians to the number of eleven arrived and exactly at half past eight struck up the inviting strains of a french quadrille followed by various other dances it is needless to say that my pen is too weak dull and spiritless to describe the dance that owed its inspiration to the genial hospitality of the grey-headed host and how i ask can the modest chronicler of mr golitkin's adventures extremely interesting as they are in their own way how can i depict the choice and rare mingling of beauty brilliance style gaiety polite solidity and solid politeness sportiveness joy all the mirth and playfulness of these wives and daughters of petty officials more like fairies than ladies in a complimentary sense with their lily shoulders and their rosy faces their ethereal figures their playfully agile homeopathic to use the exalted language appropriate little feet how can i describe to you finally the gallant officials their partners gay and solid youths steady gleeful decorously vague smoking a pipe in the intervals between the dancing in a little green room apart or not smoking a pipe in the intervals between the dances every one of them with a highly respectable surname and rank in the service all steeped in a sense of the elegant and a sense of their own dignity almost all speaking french to their partners or of russian using only the most well-bred expressions compliments and profound observations and only in the smoking-room permitting themselves some genial lapses from this high tone some phrases of cordial and friendly brevity such for instance as pawn my soul petka you rake you did kick me off that polka in style or i say vasya you dog you did give your partner a time of it for all this as i have already had the honour of explaining all my readers my pen fails me and therefore i am dumb let us rather return to mr golitkin the true and only hero of my very truthful tale the fact is that he found himself now in a very strange position to the least of it he was here also gentlemen that is not at the dance but almost at the dance he was all right though he could take care of himself yet at that moment he was a little astray he was standing at the moment strange to say on the landing of the back stairs to also fee vanovich's flat but it was all right he standing there he was quite well he was standing in a corner huddled in a place which was not very warm though it was dark partly hidden by a huge cupboard and an old screen in the midst of rubbish litter and odds and ends of old sorts concealing himself for the time being and watching the course of proceedings as a disinterested spectator he was only looking on now gentlemen he too gentlemen might go in of course why should he not go in he had only to take one step and he would go in and would go in very adroitly just now though he had been standing nearly three hours between the cupboard and the screen in the midst of the rubbish litter and odds and ends of all sorts he was only quoting in his own justification a memorable phrase of the french minister villel all things come in time to him who has the strength to wait mr golikin had read this sentence in some book 
on quite a different subject, but now very aptly recalled it. The phrase to begin with was exceedingly appropriate to his present position, and, indeed, why should it not occur to the mind of a man who had been waiting for almost three hours in the cold and dark in expectation of a happy ending to his adventures? After quoting very appropriately the phrase of the French minister Villel, Mr. Golitkin immediately thought of the Turkish vizier, Marc de Simris, as well as of the beautiful Margravine Louis, whose story he had read also in some book. Then it occurred to his mind that the Jesuits made it their rule that any means were justified if only the end were attained. Fortifying himself somewhat with this historical fact, Mr. Golitkin said to himself, What were the Jesuits? The Jesuits were every one of them very great fools. That he was better than any one of them. That if only the refreshment room would be empty for one minute, the door of the refreshment room opened straight into the passage to the back stairs where Mr. Golitkin was hiding. He would, in spite of all the Jesuits in the world, go straight in, first from the refreshment room into the tea room, then into the room where they were now playing cards, then straight into the hall where they were now dancing the polka, and he would go in, he would slip through, and that would be all. No one would notice him, and once there he would know what to do. Well, so this is the position in which we find the hero of our perfectly true story, though indeed it is difficult to explain what was passing in him at that moment. The fact is that he had made his way to the back of the stairs and to the passage on the ground that, as he said, why shouldn't he? And everyone did go that way, but he had not ventured to penetrate further. Evidently, he did not dare to do so, not because there was anything he did not dare, but just because he did not care to, because he preferred to be in hiding. So here he was, waiting now for a chance to slip in, and he had been waiting for it two hours and a half. Why not wait? Villel himself had waited. But what had Villel to do with it? thought Mr. Gulliatkin. How does Villel come in? But how am I to? To go and walk in. Eh, you dummy, said Mr. Gulliatkin, pinching his benumbed cheek with his benumbed fingers. You silly fool. You silly old Gulliatkin. Silly fool of a surname. But these compliments paid to himself were only by the way and without any apparent aim. Now he was on the point of pushing forward and slipping in. The refreshment room was empty and no one was in sight. Mr. Golikin saw all this through the little window. In the steps he was at the door and had already opened it. Should he go in or not? I'll go in. Why not? Do the bold always lie open? Reassuring himself in this way, our hero suddenly and quite unexpectedly retreated behind the screen. No he thought. Ah, now somebody's coming in. Yes, they've come in. Why did I dawdle when there were no people about? Even so, I shall go and slip in. No, how slip in when a man has such a temperament? Fee, what a low tendency. I'm as scared as a hen. Being scared is our special line. That's the fact of the matter. To be abject on every occasion is our line. No need to ask us about that. Just stand here, like a post, and that's all. At home, I should be having a cup of tea now. 
It would be pleasant, too, to have a cup of tea. If I come in later, Petrushka, I'll crumble, maybe. Shall I go home? Damnation take all this. I'll go, and that'll be the end of it. Reflecting on his position in this way, Mr. Golikin dashed forward as though someone had touched a spring in him. In two steps he found himself in the refreshment room, flung off his overcoat, took off his hat, hurriedly thrust these things into a corner, straightened himself and smoothed himself down. Then, then he moved on to the tea-room, and from the tea-room darted into the next room, slipped almost unnoticed between the car-players, who were at the tip-top of excitement. Then Mr. Golikin forgot everything that was going on about him, and went straight as an arrow into the drawing-room. As luck would have it, they were not dancing. The ladies were promenading up and down the room in picturesque groups. The gentlemen were standing about in twos and threes, or flitting about the room, engaging partners. Mr. Golikin noticed nothing of this. He saw only Clara Osefevna, near her Andrei Filipovich, then Vladimir Semyonovich, two or three officers, and finally two or three other young men, who were also very interesting, and, as anyone could see at once, were either very promising or had actually done something. He saw someone else too, or rather, he saw nobody and looked at nobody, but moved by the same spring which had set him dashing into the midst of a ball to which he had not been invited. He moved forward, and then forwarder, and forwarder. On the way he jostled against a counsellor and trod on his foot, and incidentally stepped on a very venerable old lady's dress and tore it a little, pushed against a servant with a tray, and then ran against somebody else, and not noticing all this, passing further and further forward, he suddenly found himself facing Clarence the Favner. There is no doubt whatever that he would, with the utmost delight, without winking an eyelid, have sung through the earth at that moment, but what has once been done cannot be recalled, can never be recalled. What was he to do? If I, to intrigue, if I fail, I don't lose heart. If I succeed, I persevere. Mr. Golikin was, of course not, one to intrigue, and not accomplished in the art of polishing the floor with his boots. And so, indeed, it proved. Besides, the Jesuits had some hand in it too. Mr. Golikin had no thoughts to spare for them now. All the moving, noisy, laughing groups were suddenly hushed as though at a signal, and, little by little, crowded round Mr. Golikin. He, however, seemed to hear nothing, to see nothing. He could not look. He could possibly not look at anything. He kept his eyes on the floor and stood, giving himself his word of honour, in passing to shoot himself one way or the other. That night, making this war, Mr. Golitkin inwardly said to himself, Here goes, and to his own great astonishment, began unexpectedly to speak. He began with congratulations and polite wishes. The congratulations went off well, but over the good wishes our hero stammered. He felt that if he stammered, all would be lost at once. And so it turned out. He stammered and floundered, floundering. He blushed crimson, blushing. He was overcome with confusion. In his confusion, he raised his eyes. Raising his eyes, he looked about him. Looking about him, he almost swooned. Everyone stood still. Everyone was silent. 
A little nearer there was laughter. Mr. Golikin fastened a humble, imploring look on Andrei Filipovitch. Andrei Filipovitch responded with such a look that if our hero had not been utterly crushed already, he certainly would have been crushed a second time. That is, if that were possible, the silence lasted long. This rather concerned with my domestic circumstances and my private life, Andrei Filipovitch. Our hero half dead articulated in a scarcely audible voice. It is not an official incident, Andrei Filipovitch. For shame, sir, for shame, Andrei Filipovitch pronounced in a half whisper. With an incredible air of indignation, he pronounced these words, and giving Clara Sofeina his arm, he returned away from Mr. Golyutkin. I have nothing to be ashamed of, Andrei Filipovitch, answered Mr. Golyutkin, also in a whisper turning his miserable eyes about him, trying helplessly to discover in the amazed crowd something on which he could gain a footing and retrieve his social position. Why? It's all right. It's nothing. Gentlemen, why? What's the matter? Why? It might happen to anyone, whispered Mr. Golikin, moving a little away and trying to escape from the crowd surrounding him. They made way for him. Our hero passed through two rows of inquisitive and wandering spectators. Fate drew on him. He felt himself that fate was leading him on. He would have given a great deal, of course, for a chance to be back in the passage, by the back stairs, without having committed a breach of property, without having committed a breach of propriety. But as that was utterly impossible, he began trying to creep away into a corner and to stand there, modestly, decorously, apart, without interfering with anyone, without attracting a special attention, but at the same time to win the favourable notice of his host and the company. At the same time Mr. Golikin felt as though the ground were giving way under him, as though he was staggering, falling. At last he made his way to a corner and stood in it, like an unconcerned, rather indifferent spectator, leaning his arms on the backs of two chairs, taking complete possession of them in that way, and trying, as far as he could, to glance confidently at all Sophie Vavanovitch's guests. Grouped about him, standing nearest him, was an officer, a tall and handsome fellow, beside whom Kulyatkin felt himself an insect. These two chairs, lieutenant, are intended, one for Clara Sofievna, and other for Princess Shehanov. I am taking care of them for them said Mr. Golikin breathlessly, turning his imploring eyes on the officer. The lieutenant said nothing, but turned away with a murderous smile. Checked in this direction, our hero was about to try his luck in another quarter, and directly addressed an important counsellor with a cross of great distinction on his breast. But the counsellor looked him up and down with such a frigid stare that Mr. Golikin felt distinctly as though a whole bucket full of cold water had been thrown over him. He subsided into silence. He made up his mind that it was better to keep quiet, not to open his lips, and to show that he was all right, that he was like everyone else, and that his position, as far as he could say, was quite a proper one. With this object, he riveted his gaze on the lining of his coat, then raised his eyes and fixed them upon a very respectable-looking gentleman. That gentleman has a wig on, thought Mr. Golyakin, and if he takes off that wig, he would be bald. His head will be as bare as the palm of my hand. 
Having made this important discovery, Mr. Goliadkin thought of the Arab emirs, whose heads are left bare and shaven if they take off the green turbans they wear as a sign of their descent from the Prophet Muhammad. Then probably, from some special connection of ideas with the Turks, he thought of the Turkish slippers, and at once, apropos of that, recalled the fact that Andrei Filipovich was wearing boots, and that his boots were more like slippers than boots. It was evident that Mr. Gulyatkin had become, to some extent, reconciled to his position. What if the Chantelier, flashed Mr. Gulyatkin's mind, were to come down from the ceiling and fall upon the company? I would rush at once to save Clara Zafavna. Save her, I should cry. Don't be alarmed, madam. It's of no consequence. I will rescue you. I then. At that moment, Mr. Gulyatkin looked about in search of Clara Zafavna and saw Gerasimich, Al-Sufi Ivanovich's old butler, Gerasimich, with a most anxious and solemnly official air, was, was making straight for him. Mr. Goliadkin started and frowned from an unaccountable but most disagreeable sensation. He looked about him mechanically, and it occurred to his mind that if only he could somehow creep off somewhere unobserved, on the sly, simply disappear, that it behave as though he had done nothing at all as though the matter did not concern him in the least. But before our hero could make up his mind to do anything, Gerasimich was standing before him. Do you see, Gerasimich, said our hero with a little smile addressing Gerasimich, you go and tell them. Do you see the candle there in the chandelier, Gerasimich? It will be falling down directly. So you know, you must tell them to see to it. It really will fall down, Gerasimich. The candle? No. The candle's standing straight. But somebody else is asking for you, sir. Who's asking for you, Gerasimich? I really can't say, sir, who it is. A man with a message. Is Yakov Petrovich Goliadkin here? Says he. Then call him out. Says he. On very urgent and important business, you say. No, Gerasimich. You're making a mistake. In that you're making a mistake, Gerasimich. I doubt it, sir. No, Gerasimich. It isn't doubtful. There is nothing doubtful about it, Gerasimich. Nobody's asking for me, but I'm quite at home here. That is, in my right place, Gerasimich. Mr. Golitkin took a breath and looked about him. Yes, everyone in the room, all had their eyes fixed upon him, and were listening in a sort of solemn expectation. The men had crowded a little nearer, and were all attention. A little further away, the ladies were whispering together. The master of the house made his appearance at no great distance from Mr. Golitkin, and though it was impossible to detect from his expression that he too was taking a close and direct interest in Mr. Golitkin's position, for everything was being done with delicacy, yet, nevertheless, it all made our hero feel that the decisive moment had come for him. Mr. Golitkin saw clearly that the time had come for an old stroke the chance of putting his enemies to shame. Mr. Golikin was in great agitation. He was aware of a sort of inspiration, and, in a quivering and impressive voice, he began again, addressing the waiting butler. No, my dear fellow, no one's calling for me. You're mistaken. I will say more. You were mistaken this morning, too, when you assured me, dared to assure me, I say, 
he raised his voice, that also Ivanovitch, who has been my benefactor for as long as I can remember and has in a sense been a father to me, was shutting his door upon me at the moment of solemn family rejoicing for his paternal heart. Mr. Goliatkin looked about him complacently, but with deep feeling. A tear glittered on his eyelash. I repeat, my friend, our hero concluded, you were mistaken. You were cruelly and unpardonably mistaken. The moment was a solemn one. Mr. Goliatkin felt that the effect was quite certain. He stood with modesty, downcast eyes, expecting also Fievanovich to embrace him. Excitement and perplexity were apparent in the guests. Even the inflexible and terrible Gerasmich faltered over the words, I doubt it. When suddenly the ruthless orchestra, apropos of nothing, struck up a polka, all was lost, all was scattered to the wings. Mr. Goliatkin started, Gerasimich stepped back, everything in the room began undulating like the sea, and Vladimir Semyonovich led the dance with Clara Osefevna, while the handsome lieutenant followed with Princess Sheshehanov, onlookers, curious and delighted, squeezed in to watch them dancing the polka, an interesting fashionable new dance which everyone was crazy over. Mr. Goliatkin was, for the time, forgotten. But suddenly, all were thrown into excitement, confusion, and bustle. The music ceased. A strange incident had occurred. Tired out with the dance, and almost breathless with fatigue, Clara Osefevna, with glowing cheeks and heaving bosom, sank into an armchair, completely exhausted. All hearts turned to the fascinating creature. All vied with one another in complimenting her and thanking her for the pleasure conferred on them. All at once stood before her, Mr. Goliatkin. He was pale, extremely perturbed. He too seemed completely exhausted. He could scarcely move. He was smiling for some reason. He stretched out his hand imploringly. Clara Osofavina was so taken aback that she had not time to withdraw hers and mechanically got up at his invitation. Mr. Goliatkin lurched forward, first once, then a second time then lifted his leg, then made a scrape, then gave a sort of stamp, then stumbled. He, too, wanted to dance with Clara Osefevna. Clara Osefevna uttered a shriek. Everyone rushed to release her hand from Mr. Golitkin's, and in a moment our hero was carried almost ten paces away by the rush of the crowd. A circle formed round him, too. Two old ladies, whom he had almost knocked down, in his retreat, raised a great shrieking and outcry. The confusion was awful. All were asking questions. Everyone was shouting. Everyone was finding fault. The orchestra was silent. Our hero whirled round in a circle and mechanically, with a semblance of a smile, muttered something to himself, such as, Why not? And that the poker, so far at least, as he could say, was a new, very interesting dance invented for the diversion of the ladies, but that, since things had taken this turn, he was ready to consent. But Mr. Golitkin's consent, no one apparently thought of asking. Our hero was suddenly aware that someone's hand was laid on his arm, that another hand was pressed against his back, that he was, with peculiar solitude, being guided in a certain direction. At last he noticed that he was going straight to the door, 
Mr. Golikin wanted to say something, to do something, but no, he no longer wanted to do anything. He only mechanically kept laughing in answer. At last, he was aware that they were putting on his great coat, that his hat was thrust over his eyes. Finally, he felt that he was in the entry on the stairs in the dark and cold. At last, he stumbled. He felt that he was falling down a precipice. He tried to cry out, and suddenly he found himself in the courtyard. The air blew fresh on him. He stood still for a minute. At that very instant, the strains reached him of the orchestra striking up again. Mr. Golitkin suddenly recalled it all. It seemed to him that all his flagging energies came back to him again. But he had been standing as though reverted to the spot. But now he started off and rushed away headlong, anywhere into the air, into freedom, wherever chance might take him. End of chapter 4